0: Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Neil Sample. Until recently, Neil was the Chief Information Officer of Northwestern Mutual. Prior to that, he was the CIO and then the Chief Operating Officer of Express Scripts. And prior to that, he was the CIO of American Express Enterprise Growth, current president of that unit. Therefore, I look forward to understanding more about his pathway from CIO to something definitively above that and why he's continued to return to the CIO role. He's also on the board of Wellfield Technologies and the University of Health Sciences and Pharmacy in St. Louis, and I look forward to hearing more about his pathway to becoming a board-level technologist and the value he's contributed and derived from those experiences. Neil, welcome back to Technovation. It's always great to speak with you. Thank you, Peter. Glad to be here. Well, I thought we would begin, Neil, with uh, your time at Northwestern Mutual. Not so long ago, we went on the record when you were in the throes of that experience, but you've had a few months now uh, to uh, rest and reflect, no doubt. And I wonder if there are any sort of top line conclusions you've come to about your time at Northwestern Mutual. I would love to have you take a few minutes and talk about that, if you would.
1: Um, you know, a couple of things came to mind as, as as I was reflecting back on the time at Northwestern Mutual. Um, and the first thing was really a bit of a conclusion after looking at multiple roles over the years. Um, And that's one that I now uh, I always suspected, but I feel pretty strongly about, Um, and that's that the technology function essentially is going to match the and mirror the pace and the heartbeat of the business. Um, So if you have a business that is uh, by its very nature um, dynamic and real time and customer facing um, technology needs to feel the same way inside. Um, if you have uh, a business that isn't as much, is is sort of asynchronous, not consumer-facing, maybe it's B2B, um, your technology function will invariably have uh, similar feelings. And I always thought that that was just a little bit of a coincidence, maybe the way businesses grow up. But in stepping back and reflecting, um, it seems pretty obvious that the business cycle, um, whether it's the um consumer cycle of, of being in retail and having holiday shopping or it's the market cycle and planning and budgeting, etc, um, that your tech function needs to sort of go with the grain with the rest of the business, because if it doesn't it'll be dragged in that direction over time. Um, The second thing I would say, and and this is one of the reasons I think Northwestern Mutual is a great bit of evidence towards that hypothesis, um, is that structurally as a company, it runs very, very differently. So it's a mutual and not uh, public or private, sort of somewhere in between. Um, And it was really uh, around the lessons of what would you do if you had no short-term concerns? And I don't mean no short-term concerns, every company has has short-term concerns, but But Northwestern Mutual as a mutual uh, means that there's no equity component, that there's no reporting to the street, that there's no um, quarterly earnings to meet, um, that you don't have uh, analysts sort of looking over your shoulder, uh, second-guessing you. And it means that you can plan for a long-term future, a long-term horizon. Um, Being primarily a permanent life insurance manufacturer means that they put products out in the market where the expectation is that clients who remain clients after the first five years average more than 40 years with the company. So incredibly durable, incredibly persistent. And so, then the question is, well, how would you run tech in that kind of environment? And the answer is differently, Um, that there are lessons there about um, return on equity or return on capital, for example. Um, Data centers are not uh, a a dead notion, because if you can break even at seven years and be ahead um, between years eight and years 30 on an asset like that, you would do it. Um, Whereas you know contemporary thinking, you would never take on a project that that pays off in seven years or breaks even in seven years um, if you've got a return uh, capital to the street. And so, a very different way of thinking about technology um, with more of a long-term
0: view, uh, which I think tempers short-term roles as well. I appreciate you taking some time to reflect on on your most recent role and speaking on your past roles. Uh, I mentioned in in the introduction that you've been a CIO multiple times over and you've advanced beyond it multiple times over from CIO to group president of American Express Enterprise Growth, from CIO to COO of Express Scripts, and then back uh, to CIO at Northwestern Mutual. And and I'm curious, um, what has been so compelling about the chief information officer role that has had you returning to that, that role? It would seem to the outside observer that it is a diminution of your responsibilities in some ways. But I know from our uh, many correspondences that there's a lot about the role that make it very interesting as time passes and, and ever changing. And I'd love to have you reflect on some of that.
1: Uh, yeah, great question. Um, so I think there are a couple of things there. Uh, the first thing I would say is um, if you like dynamism um, in your role, if, you, if you're if you happy with the role changing, continuously growing, etc. Um, that I think the CIO role um, is probably at least in my lifetime, one of the roles that's changed the most. Um, I think there's close competition with like a, a chief marketing officer. Um, and the drivers behind both of those have been the same, however, um, that, uh, you know, within the CIO function, everybody thinks about technology changing and it does all the time. Um, but we also are confronted with process changes that vary dramatically the way we would do our jobs. And so, starting in, for example, the '80s, um, best of breed thinking might have been waterfall. Uh, and then you fast forward, say, 15 years, and now all of a sudden it's it's sort of agile or nothing. And then beyond, say, well, what's post agile? And it turns out it's you know DevOps or DevSecOps um, and other uh, changes that you know, I don't see functions changing that much. So CIO remains interesting because I think there's this constant state of renewal. However, um, its relevance to the business has also grown over the years. Um, And so, you know, again, Back in, let's say, the 80s or the early 90s, the CIO role was really a back office role, and we can see these trends. That Many times they reported, for example, to the CFO, um, they were cost containment, um, that it was uh, to support internal HRIS, accounting systems, etc., that there was far less opportunity to even be client-facing or be part of the product set. Um, And so that's changed in such a way that I think is really positive for the role um, that coming into a business in the technology function, there's almost no faster way to learn the business because the speeds and feeds of technology, um, the areas of focus, uh, for example, for investment or reliability, what you need to do to keep the business running. Speak volumes about the reality of the business um, that may or may not match the external perception. So I think it's um, an incredibly powerful place to learn about the company as well, um, and obviously uh, use a skill set that's maybe was was deployed differently uh, some decades ago. So I'm pretty excited about where the CIO
0: function has gone and and where it continues to grow over the next few years. Neil, I, I, it strikes me I've got a rare opportunity uh, to speak with somebody who's in between roles. I, we, we, we rarely uh, have that opportunity. And as a result, you're not constrained by a communications department of a company you're, you are affiliated with. And um, I wanted to ask you, if you don't mind, about the complications associated with set, this set of roles. Uh, in many ways, they are growing in strategic responsibility and uh, in terms of the opportunities that can be driven from it, as you have clearly stated. On the other hand, there's a lot at stake. Uh, The innovation that should be driven digitally, uh, as well as the issues one needs to guard against, uh, cybersecurity being chief among those. I wonder with uh, some time now to have reflected how you would describe the challenges associated with this role.
1: Yeah, thanks for the question, Peter. Um, you know, one of the things that pops up for uh CIOs and that's sort of obvious um is the the nature of constant trade-off uh within the uh within the business, whether it's sh- you know short-term versus long-term or security uh versus development or um, infrastructure investments versus new product development, um, that there's this constancy of trade-off um within the technology area that is that is can be difficult to manage um you know if we all had our way um and we were to write down on a blank sheet of paper what does the technology environment look like invariably most cios would have something that's quite a bit different than what they have um, at least if they've been at the business for five, 10, 20 years or more, um, there's a real deviation between what you wish you had in the toolbox um, and what you currently maintain and operate uh, and you know what would be best to breed or best practice. And so managing those trade offs is is key um, to the job, that we don't all have infinite sets of resources and and budgets, and that the dollars that are spent on on maintenance, for example, trade off with development on the short term. And so that's one of the things that I think is, is always a struggle for CIOs. But a bigger one, and one that we don't talk about as often, Um, is that internal struggle with the company, where what we know is that at an enterprise scale, bringing together um, the technology assets collectively makes the most sense, right? To have sort of a single delivery organization, uh, which means you get economies of scale, you get efficiencies of management, you get the ability to globally plan and therefore optimize a portfolio. And so that's a really great thing, centralization. However... Um, you may have uh, business lines, more than one, or product lines, and and you may have two or three or four or in larger companies, maybe it's even broken up regionally and with geographic, uh, global geographies, you might have eight or 10 different stakeholders that all want a piece of the technology puzzle. And so in that regard, you're absolutely supposed to be operating like Switzerland, Um, But if you are this same technologist that's getting closer and closer to the business, um, invariably you have opinions and you have perspectives, Um, but you can't let those opinions and perspectives play out or even let them appear to play out uh, because yours is uh, ultimately a service job, for example, when you have that type of organizational structure. So that, I think, is one of the most difficult tensions um, is that you're supposed to not have opinions <laughs> about what the business is gonna do and you let that process happen and it gets negotiated elsewhere. However, the direct consequence um, is yours and that you will feel it. Um, and invariably, um, you know, you'll get to some point in the year and there'll be some new uh, value proposition that pops up and a new business wants to um, uh, develop a new feature or something, and the trade off will be against an existing project and somebody else who works in a different business unit is the leader or the sponsor of that project and they will turn their eyes to technology and say "Well, will just fix it do both of those things and you'll be in the unenviable position of explaining why. Uh, You can't do both. Um, And so, you know, you have to manage these problems that are not of your own design. They're not about, hey, listen, this was, you know, upgrading the mainframe or this was a new client experience. It is a a change in the um, opportunity analysis from the business. It sits in technology and then technology says, well, here are what the possible trade-offs are. And so you're implicitly making uh, opportunities available or taking opportunities away from someone else. And that can be very, very difficult to manage. That's the kind of thing that that um, when you're learning about uh, software development processes is not part of the equation. It's not part of the learning. You don't find this political aspect of the job. And so for me, I think that's one of the hardest things that we don't talk about that in any large complicated enterprise, anything that isn't just a single product, small company, no trade-offs to be made. Um, that comes up very, very often and sort of politicizes what should otherwise be a central, neutral uh, resource at a company. And that's the, the hardest thing to manage.
0: That's interesting, Neil. As I reflect on your answer, in many ways, it brings to mind the historical stereotype of the IT leader is more IQ than EQ. And the necessity for Technology and digital chiefs to have that balance between, of course, IQ because these are tough jobs that require a lot of horsepower, brain power, but also EQ because they are roles where influence of one's fellow executives uh, is 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 paramount. And is that is that a fair assessment from your perspective? I think so.
1: Um, and, you know, you can use your IQ to offset your EQ, uh, for example, um, that a really good team um, avoids most of those trade-offs, right? Like they figure out how to resequence work or an architecture team figures out a, um, you know, a shortcut or something that can be pushed off or pulled forward to make something easier. Um, and so very often, you know, um, the best organizations do, Manage to avoid the hard trade off. But yes, when that shows up, it's very, very, it's a very, very different set of skills um, to come forward with because oftentimes you become sort of that broker uh, between multiple business organizations um, and they're not. They all want the best for the company, but uh, but invariably someone's plans changed. For example, the new idea or the new market or the new sponsorship or the new partnership or the new acquisition, something that just was unplanned shows up. It's still a good idea. Um, and based on, you know, either constraints of the system, constraints of the budget, et cetera, somehow they're happier for you to be the, the broker and to tell the other team, <laughs> Or the other side of the other business unit. No. And that's an EQ skill. You're right. We we use the IQ as often as possible to avoid the, the stickier questions. But when they can't be avoided, when there is a hard trade-off, um, then the role changes dramatically. The things that make you successful in that seat are very, very different. Um, Than the sort of steady-state success model, and it's it's a quite a change and can be uh, quite a challenge for folks who aren't used to it.
0: What a great synopsis of of the ever-changing role of chief information officer, and in, in many ways, how it becomes much more strategic as time passes. Um, you know, I would I would ask you to take a quick moment about to talk a little bit more about uh, the the CIO role and what it is about it that has created opportunities for you to grow beyond it? Uh, You know, great work being done as a chief information officer, translating into broader sets of responsibilities. What are some of the things that come to mind?
1: It is a really interesting um, trend to see that uh, the CIO role itself um, and the individuals who sit in that seat um, become more and more in demand. We know that they are, for example, on boards. Uh, we know, you know, in my own case, as you mentioned, taking on business roles. Um, and I think that that, again, going just wind the clock back a little bit used to be a remarkably different set of skills um, to be CIO. So when you didn't have a digital platform like the internet or mobile computing, um, you weren't uh, as sensitive to customer needs because the customers were never interfacing with your systems. You didn't have an obligation to support them. Uh, Maybe you weren't working closely with operations because that was a very different function. So I think the evolution of the role Um, has made it more business-centric, more business-focused. I think the evolution of that role has also sort of winnowed the field, if you will, to to attract and retain folks who are more business-focused in that seat, who are more responsive to the needs of the business. And therefore, it's a natural progression then that they can take those skill sets that are a little different than they might have been before and apply them to other, other areas of the business. I think the flip side is, or in terms of governance, as you look at boards, um, it's just sort of obvious that as traditional companies mature, um, they need more of a technology perspective on their board to meet the needs of of consumer or B2B demands. Um, And I also think that uh, the relevance of that seat having not been filled, that board seat having not been filled by a technologist in the past, um, it's a way to bring a different type of diversity, diverse thinking at least um, to the board uh, to the, the, uh, from the CIO
0: seat. Well, you mentioned in your response uh, board level responsibilities, and I would love to have you reflect on that a little bit further if you would. As I mentioned at the outset, you're on the board of Wellfield Technologies, uh, of the University of Health Sciences and Pharmacy in St. Louis as well. And I wonder you know, if you could take a moment and talk a bit about uh, the what what boards gain from including a technologist on them.
1: I think um, I would all know I would actually almost turn that hypothesis around and ask um, what board wouldn't be improved with the addition of or substitution of a technologist. Um, what uh, company would not be enhanced by having a, a richer perspective on technology? Um, and so, you know, again, looking at my own history and the the um, journey that that friends of mine have been on, colleagues in the in the industry. Um, We definitely have seen exactly that trend play out which is more and more boards are bringing on um, primary technologists uh, to take at least one seat um, on their board. Um, And I think that's just the nature of of relevance of that seat. Um, It really doesn't matter what business you're in, you're in a B2B marketplace or you're selling online or you're doing customer acquisition, you're managing your supply chain, um, you're managing the back office. All of those things um, are powered by technology. And all of those things, whether it's, uh, you know, sort of top line growing the business or bottom line, you know, optimizing the business um, require uh, expertise and skill in the technology um, sleeve. And so, Like for me, it's, I would almost look at it the other way, like what board can afford not to? Um, What board is either not got a company that's on a growth trajectory with its technology um, or is hampered by technology, maybe isn't on that growth trend yet, but has to, for example, uh, clean up and modernize legacy. I would challenge you and say, there isn't a, a company out there that isn't in some way powered by technology that can afford to have a board that's bereft of technology leaders, and so um, I think it's I think it's the other way. I think you know the trend is definitely there, um, but the trend should sort of finish with all boards having somebody from with a tech background on them. It's it's a little crazy to think about the the
0: idea that you wouldn't. Thank you for for mentioning that. I, I certainly hope that uh, the club that you have joined, still a very elite one of technologists, have joined boards. Uh, will have more members like you. You know, Peter Weil uh, from MIT Scissor and some of his collaborators did some really compelling research to highlight the that uh, boards that have multiple technologists on it uh, have outsized performance relative to their peers. And hopefully it's your experiences and data like that that will compel more companies to have peers of yours join those same boards. Um, I, I wonder also, as you now look to the future a little bit, uh, you keep yourself busy, obviously, with your board work and other other activities that you're, you're uh, involved in. What what are you plotting uh, for next? What are some of the things that you're excited about as you think about your next uh, professional opportunity?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so for me personally, uh, I find myself in an interesting spot um, in terms of evaluation. Uh, and so you know, we've been pretty successful over the years uh, with um, with some successful exits, for example, whether it's a large public company acquisition or early in my career with small companies. Um, and so even though I'm somewhat earlier in my career, I'm afforded the freedom to not have to choose um, a next step immediately. Um, and I've taken that time to reflect and And here's the interesting crossroads. And this this is one that I'm sure people invariably struggle with um, which is that—that that what to do next? And there are two very different directions. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, uh, I am a senior vice chair of a of a University of Health Science and Pharmacy, um, and I also serve on a public board on on Wellfield Technologies. And, you know, board work takes time, uh, requires depth, the preparation, et cetera. And so here's the here's the sort of crossroads of a conundrum. As you mentioned, a lot of public boards are seeking folks with a technology background. And I could, for example, take on another public board, um, but in doing so, I think uh, there wouldn't be enough time in life to, to take on an operating role. Um, and then taking on an operating role, uh, for example, going back to a CIO, for example, um, while maintaining more than one public board would be sort of an outrageous proposition as well. Um, And so for me, I'm kind of looking at that difference. Should I uh, jump back into um, uh, a CIO role or a chief operating officer role or a business uh, role, um, or take more of a portfolio approach and and maybe add that. I uh, add another public company that that is looking for uh, a technology oriented board member. um, and then maybe throw in some consulting uh, as a lot of folks generally consider that option, I think later in their careers. um it's it's in, it's interesting to hear those perspectives, get my mentors and advisors uh, to to give me their best advice and counsel and and we'll see where it goes. But um, it's a, it's an interesting spot to think about uh, because they are very, very different paths. They are sort of crossroads and you can't really do both simultaneously.
0: You know, I I, I wanted to um, also ask you, Neil, in our many conversations, I don't think I've ever had a chance to ask you this. You have a PhD from Stanford in computer science um, and therefore have a great weight, uh, breadth and depth uh, to your knowledge of that discipline for the degree that you have gotten. And at a time where... There are many who believe that that advanced education is decreasing in importance. You see, the number of people that have as a badge of honor of dropping out of elite universities to start businesses. You have Peter Thiel, who's uh, actually putting dollars against that idea and creating a, a a cohort of people who skip college in order to start businesses. Um, you know, you are somebody who has taken the time to get to at least degree wise the highest level degree there is in a discipline. And I wonder, you know, you are just one person and therefore I'm sure uh, can't speak for everyone, but talk a bit about your own thought process, about the advantages of, of uh, more rather than less education. Um, and, you know, as, as someone who's a father, as somebody who advises people who, is, who are younger than, than himself. What advice you would offer to others the extent to which you do uh, about uh you know advanced education.
1: Yeah, you know, we haven't talked about this before, but I like to um I like to think that I have an interesting perspective because I did both. <laughs> Despite having the PhD, um, <laughs> one of the things that uh is uh is maybe not always obvious is I I don't think I graduated from Stanford in until I think it was 2004, maybe 2005, uh, something like that. Um, because while I was in my PhD program uh, was actually when I went to do uh, a startup um, with, with some friends, a smaller company that was eventually acquired by HP. Um, and I did uh, not quite finish the program and, and eventually got a letter from the university that said, hey, listen, <laughs> you've been gone long enough. Uh, that your credits are going to expire, uh, and you'll need to physically come back to school if, if you want to complete this program, you'll have to turn in your dissertation, all that sort of thing. Um, so I, I did the thing where I found uh, a great startup and and worked with some amazing peers and got that work experience, um, and then kind of eventually hit a crossroads where it was like, all right, I need to finish this up now and and sort of come back or not. Um, And ultimately the counsel I got was, listen, go back and finish it, you know, take a few months, take the time off, finish your dissertation, uh, get through, get through the process. Um, And so I did that, uh, but it was years and years later uh, after I started, I I was at Stanford in the nineties, starting my PhD program. And it was a very long PhD because I did sort of leave the program and, and work um, and do a startup uh, that was ultimately successful my answer is you can't go wrong either way. Um, Now, I don't know what the world would have liked if I'd finished my startup and continued uh, forward without sort of pausing and coming back. Um, But I would say the formal side of my education was incredibly important. Um, It led to, um, you know, I think some doors opening that wouldn't be opened otherwise. Um, The most extreme example I can think of I have a colleague that I've hired a few times who uh, himself was a Stanford dropout, did, you know, did four, maybe five years there, but actually was consulting and went into consulting and, and spent time there and did some startups and things, remarkably successful. Um, however, uh, when I was talking about bringing him back into uh, to a particular company we were both at at the same time, the HR system, Uh, as part of the application process required you to put your undergraduate uh, degree completion, et cetera, so that they could do the background verification. And we even needed to get an exception to say, listen, um, there is no degree completion date because there is no undergrad degree. And that was a gating factor on the HR system. And so you know, at least um, finishing that undergraduate degree, I think is critically important that there are still doors that will not be open, even if you're really good at technology or sometimes you might get in as a developer or coder, but wouldn't be considered for growth paths internally. Um, but I think, uh, you know, graduate school has has been remarkably valuable, but so was that early startup experience. And I don't think you can go wrong at either. Um, the one thing I would say, though, is, is, you know, sort of finish that four-year degree, demonstrate that you can follow through, that you're, um, you know, can achieve one of these pinnacle sort of things, because I do think that opens enough doors later on uh, that it's critical. But otherwise, you know, you can't go wrong on either path. Um, so so I have a hard time uh, picking one of those two as, as better.
0: I pick <laughs> both. <laughs> That's, that's why you pick both, exactly. <laughs> well, you're already getting into uh, some of the topics that I wanted to, to cover next, which is sort of the secrets of your success. We've talked a bit about some of the difference makers for you of being involved in startups and going back and getting your education and the 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 important mark that has left for you and, and, and in many ways, opening doors for you as well. I wonder if you could take a, so a little more time and reflect on the secrets to your success. As I mentioned, you've reached the highest of heights in a number of scaled organizations, uh, you've worked at, at, uh, uh, world beating, uh, digital native organizations like, uh, eBay and Yahoo. You've, you've been with other, organiz- other companies, uh, startups that have been acquired by some of, uh, you know, Silicon Valley royalty as well. Uh, what have been some of the difference makers along the way for you that you, uh, might highlight?
1: Yeah. Um, a couple of things. One, um, I would be remiss if I didn't say um, have great advisors, great sponsors, great mentors. Um, and, you know, in my own case, um, I was fortunate enough to have some of them before I was looking for some of them. Um, and so now I know later in life, of course, that it, it's super important to, to to pick them out and to, to bring them in, to create your own kitchen cabinet, if, if you will. Um, but early on, I was lucky enough to just have people show up Um, and provide, uh, you know, advice and perspective, etc. Even if it was uh, unsolicited, and maybe even unwelcome, uh, that, um, you know, when you're young, you know, everything. Uh, And when you're older and more mature, you realize just how much you don't know. Um, You know, bring those folks in early that that's one thing that I think has been really key to success. um, Because they will give you feedback on the things that are holding you back in a way that that somebody else who is, um, maybe generally supportive or or maybe even competitive internally just wouldn't um so that what I would say is one factor um and factor two um really comes down to your motivation and to figure out what gets you excited about a role um so you know there's this uh idea um you know this story of a of a man walking down a street and he sees a guy laying bricks and he says, what are you doing and he says, oh i'm I'm laying bricks." Um, he walks a little farther along, encounters another man laying bricks, and he says, oh, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm building this wall. Um, and then he walks a little further on, and and uh, he sees a third bricklayer, and he says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm helping build this cathedral. Um, and each of them were was doing the job, but had a very different perspective and a very different level of passion uh, associated with what they were doing. And so the other thing that I think has made me successful that I would encourage everyone to do um, is to figure out what elements of your job are not just a job, figure out what it is that makes you excited about it, what it, um, what will uh, generate commitment from you, um, what is it that keeps you uh, in a particular place. Um, and if you can't find those things, then do something else, right? That The career path, if you want to reach those pinnacle roles, you have to be there for a reason beyond just, hey, I want to reach for the brass ring. You have to figure out what it is that makes you excited, what makes you passionate. And when you do, it will pay off just remarkably. You will feel differently about yourself. People will perceive you differently. You will operate differently. And ultimately, you'll be driving for whatever that corporate mission is in a different way. And I think that makes a difference. It's something that oftentimes isn't discussed. Um, It's not a technology skill. It's not something that they teach you in business school. But if you really do, to your point, Peter, want to get to those pinnacle roles, um, you have to be distinguished, not only for the company, but for yourself. And so those are the two things I would say were important. Um, you know, having a, a set of mentors and and advisors and guidance, somebody who can give you that perspective outside yourself, but then figure out what it is about the business, about the function, about the team, et cetera, that gets you excited. Um, and those two things pay dividends.
0: Well, I appreciate you, you going into that detail. What, what great perspectives those are for, for all of us to bear in mind as we think about navigating our own careers. Um, I wanted to end with a question about trends. You and I often uh, uh, find time for chats to talk about uh, trends and bandy those back and forth. And I'm curious uh, from where you are now, what are some, some trends as you look to the future that have you particularly excited, Neil?
1: yeah, um and you know, some of those things we can look back on and and sort of pass judgment on now. Um, you know, java and and VMs for languages or or cloud computing. Um, and you know i've I've been a uh, ardent skeptic around uh, the blockchain um, as as a general solution for problems, um, like the hype cycle would have you believe. Um, but a couple of things that I think are really uh, interesting right now. One, I would say, um, invariably, um, AI and machine learning are increasingly important, and not just niche to to businesses that that try to answer decision support like type questions that that rely on predictability. Um, I think that um, those are going to continue to grow in importance, um, and in the obvious ways, uh, you know, for example. Um, how to uh, better support uh, marketing and and online advertising, etc. But in non-obvious ways as well, where entire industries are being upended by um, better thinking around data. um, At the same time, it's an area that's sort of fraught with not just opportunity, but risk. Um, As we think about things like um, uh, moral decisions being made by um, autonomous agents that are um, operating things like motor vehicles, or really complicated issues like um, how do we deal with art that's created by AI? Is there a a copyright that um, adheres to the AI Um, or one that belongs to the person on the internet that made the query that drove the AI to do the thing that created the art? Um, It's an area that um, I think is about ready for a renaissance, even though it just came through one. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the maturity, the adoption, the enhancement of tools, the, the art of the possible is very, very different than it was 10 or 20 years ago. Um, so I think AI comes around again uh, as a topic. The other thing I would say that that has me really intrigued, um, and, and to an extent it goes uh, hand in hand with AI or it can, I um, mean, that's the notion of bots and autonomous agents, um, both as producers and consumers. Um, and so a lot of people are, are talking about bots these days as, as we talk about Twitter and and a potential acquisition and how much traffic is real. But the rise of the bot, the autonomous agent, the ability to have it done cheaply um, at scale presents some interesting conundrums on on both sides of the ledger. So we have, you know, bot producers. Um, folks who are, uh, are agents who are producing content on places like Twitter and and that's seen oftentimes as um negative, like it's sort of spammy, um, or it's trying to be manipulative, etc. Um, on the other hand, autonomous agents and RPA and and that sort of thing in the back office is really useful because it's a productivity device. And then on the flip side, you have consumers, um, consumer bots, and so you can look at at consumer bots as um, agents or uh, things like um, ubiquitous computing and and sensors everywhere. Um, And you could say, well, those are fantastic inputs to my process. On the other hand, if you have a set of bots that are looking at web pages and consuming advertising dollars, you would say, well, maybe that's fraud or a scam. Um, and so I think the rise of the autonomous agent and the bot network um, is something that's very much related to AI, but different. Um, and I think both consumer and producer bots are, are ready for um, some revelation and, and maybe some regulation as well. I think
0: that's the one of the next frontiers uh, in technology. That gives us a lot to reflect on and to review as time passes to see how, what progress has made in some of the areas that you highlighted. I appreciate you giving that overview. And Neil Sample, thank you more generally speaking for a great conversation covering your career arc, uh, the advances you've made and, and contributions you have made to a number of great organizations, your reflections on the roles that you've held and the extent to which those examples provide uh, watermarks and, 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 and highlights for others to follow. Uh, particularly inspiring, as well as not only a look back at your accomplishments, but a look forward to, to what's to come. It's been a great dynamic and interesting conversation. Thank you so much for it.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you for having me, Peter. Really appreciate it.